Welcome to Horses for Future. This is part two of our conversation with Jane Myers, the developer of the Equicentral system. For thousands of years, horses have been intimately woven into our history. Riding on their backs, we have spread out over the planet. We have ridden them to war, we have used them to pull plows. Now it turns out they can help us to a healthier future for the planet. Horse people can make a difference. Through these podcasts, we're going to learn together how. My name is Alexandra Curland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by author, veterinarian, sustainable economist, shamanic teacher, and climate crisis activist, Manda Scott. Last week, we ended the podcast with a question for Jane about how we provide adequate exercise for our horses when we're using her system. And that's where we'll pick up again in this week's podcast. How do you overcome the issues of exercise? Because because of the cattle systems, the mob grazed cattle systems Mm. that I've seen, they are keeping animals on really quite small areas and then moving them on based on yes. the dry matter of the grass quite quickly. And obviously we want our horses. So you've got you know, your five horses on two acres. If you if they were cattle, you'd divide those five acres, two acres into very small areas and you'd move them on rapidly. Yes. Daily, and with usually. horses, yes. you don't you want the horses to be able to move more. Yes. We, we say, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. We say there's a sort of happy medium. You've, you've got to find your own happy medium. One thing that's very interesting is that the more biodiverse the pasture, the more the horses move anyway. So if you had a 10-acre paddock but it was 100% of one plant species, the horses would, when you first turn them out in there for the very first time, the horses would go around it, they'd looking for different pasture species. When they work out that it only has one type of grass in there, so it was a monoculture, they would actually then concentrate their time on grazing as near to the gate as possible because they're always on the lookout for you, Meals on Wheels, because you're, you're going to bring them something different. You're going to bring them some food, some supplementary food or whatever. So they, will, they won't move much at all, even though they're in a 10-acre <coughs> paddock. On the, other, on the flip side, if you turn a horse out in, say, a half-acre paddock, but it's very, very biodiverse, they will constantly walk around taking a bite here and a bite there and so on. And we've actually got a client who's who's videoed this and it's fascinating to see. Even though she, she's in an area in Sydney and even though her paddocks are very small, they're moving constantly. And then, mm. and then as soon as they finish the grazing bout, they're moving back to the yard for a drink. They, they carry out their loafing behaviour, which is standing around, snoozing, a bit of playing and so on. They walk themselves back out to the pasture and you would be amazed how much they actually move. So what we try and instill in people is it's not the size of the pasture, it's the biodiversity in the pasture that will dictate movement. It's nothing to do really with the size of the pasture because horses don't what they do is as they're grazing, they're just taking a step, taking a bite and another step and a bite and so on. And, and that is what creates the movement, that biodiverse pasture, not the size of the pasture. Does that make sense? Sure does. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank mm. you. Now, that's a fascinating thought because it is not, it's not what you would logically think. You would think, I've got to, if I want my horses to move, I need to give them more space. Yeah. Yeah. And ideally, the, 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 you know, it's ideal to have slightly bigger pastures, but on the other hand, a pasture can be too big because in terms of creating more biodiversity, because if a paddock is very large, then they will tend to not graze it as efficiently. And this is where we don't want the situation of, say, mob grazing, where we move them on every day. Although saying that, in some cases, even that, and, and I'm not necessarily on about creating little squares, but... Um, strip grazing is a form of mob grazing you know you're moving them across the pasture by moving the fence every day but what we advocate is instead of grazing it really short then moving the fence you get them to graze it down to that five centimeters and then move the fence and it's better if you can do what we call block grazing where you follow them up with another fence if the paddock allows that you follow them up with another fence um, 
um, so that they're not going back over the area they've already grazed. But it all depends on the layout of your of your paddocks. But as I said, it's once they've done their initial bombing around that they do when you tend to turn them out. And as I say, you don't even tend to get that much with the epicentral system because you're not you're not confining them. Or if you are fasting them up overnight, for example, which some people do overnight or through the day, you might get five minutes of running around when you first turn them out. But once they get the heads down and graze, they're just step, graze, step, graze, and so on, step, munch, and so on. They're just doing that as they move around the pasture. Um, they're not galloping around all of the time. They're only doing bouts of that, and it's usually only when you first turn them out. Brilliant. Yes, thank you. So where I am, we have, in the summer, we have horrific flies, the biting flies. So the horses don't want to be out during... Mm. Uh, a good chunk of the day yeah. and there is always the worry of overgrazing and the issues you get into with laminitis so I don't let my horses graze 24-7 no that's good so can you speak to that yes so in terms of my setup the pasture gates are opened around 4 a.m and there the horses are in by 10 Yes, that's good. The advantages to that versus the pasture gates are always open. Where, where do, where do we come down in that? Yeah. Well, what what we say is, if if horses have already had laminitis or they're likely to get laminitis, then yes, absolutely, you need to be very careful that they're not getting too much grass. And so the way you're doing it, that's that's fine. That's perfect. Where you're letting them out very early in the morning. Um, and and then bringing them in, you know, mid morning. That's that's just great. And if the horses, even if they only get one grazing bout a day, because that would be what we'd call one grazing bout, if they only get one grazing bout a day, and then the rest of the time is on hay, then that's fine as well. And what we advocate as well is that just say um, you've got a horse that you are transitioning over to being to eating more hay and grass from a previously restricted diet where you were weighing everything and. Um, and so on so you just now you're changing him over to a more ad-lib diet another way of thinking of it for those problematic horses is that you could turn the whole thing on its head whereby the horse actually grazes in the winter on longer standing hay or foggage and you you they lock them up more in the summer and all that means is this the, instead of locking up in the winter and letting them out in summer when the grasses are more dangerous if you like you're now doing it the other way around, which is actually, when you think about it, it's a really good idea because in the winter you have less time because the weather's bad and it's dark earlier and all that sort of thing. So it's actually great if the horses can spend more time out in the winter. And in summer, you're more likely to have more time to actually exercise that pony or horse um, because the weather's better and you've got longer nights and so on. Um, so... You know, once we explain that to people, often it's like, oh, it's a light bulb moment for them because they've always just thought in terms of we lock them up in winter because it's wet and muddy and cold and dark and we turn them out in summer. But you don't have to do it that way around. You can do it the other way around. Um, and because you're turning the horses out in the winter, as long as the paddocks are not too wet, because you're turning them out onto longer grasses, those longer grasses are protecting the soil um, and yes, they're getting trampled a little bit, but that's good for the soil anyway. Um, you know, they're putting all that organic matter back into the soil and it means that those horses can go out in the winter, which is fantastic. And if you're making, if you're doing foggage, which basically is just growing your grass up and letting them graze it like standing hay, you're saving on all that money spent on making hay and storing hay and feeding it all out in the winter and so on. And, and you probably end up with a mix of both. You still probably have some baled hay as well. But letting them graze that um, standing hay in the winter can be so liberating in terms of yeah, how much time it saves you and not having to lock them up in winter, but instead control their intake a little bit more of fresh, fresh grasses in the summer more, or more likely the spring and the autumn. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And it's, again, so the opposite of what we often think. And in the summer, Mm. You can barely push the horses out the door. You know, they, they don't want to go out. Yes, the that's flies right, are because horrible. of the insects. Uh, yeah, that's it. And in winter, you don't have that. Yeah, that's right. They'd much rather be out. Absolutely. And even pawing through the snow, that's an enrichment for them. Yeah, yeah, 
Absolutely, and when the ground's frozen, there's no, they're not doing any harm anyway. Yes. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Now, does it make a difference what in your recommendations if you're on clay soil? So I've always been on clay, and I, I'm familiar with it. I know, mm. I, I know, I know how to deal with clay because that's as a gardener, as a horse yeah. owner, that's what I've had. So I, I don't have experience with sand soil, sandy soils. Mm-hmm. Do your recommendations well, change at all if you're on a very... No, well, what's, what's really interesting is that clay and sand soils both require exactly the same, in that both of them require more organic matter. Organic matter, yeah. And the solution to dealing with both of them is to increase the organic matter. So once you get that happening, then isn't not a problem anyway? Obviously, clay soiled in the in a wet time of year, then you know you've got to watch them more. But if you over time get that organic matter really built up in the clay, you won't even know you've got clay, particularly in the end, because there'll be so much organic matter in there. You'll have so much gro- plant growth that the clay then is not a problem anyway. That's right. Um, I mean, there are there's some parts, you know, some areas, especially in the UK down south where the clay is horrendous but again you can only do what is the best compromise for you we often talk about how horse keeping is about compromise it's about getting the right compromise for you that works so we we talk about these broad ideas but you have to then take those ideas and make them work for you and we give people lots of you know help with that how they can do that and people all around the world have been doing this now for quite a few years and and, you know, so there, there's the solutions to pretty much every problem in the end. But it is about compromise. So getting back to clay and sand, as I said, just say on your property, most areas of land, you'll have one area that's more clay than the other, for instance. So you would pick your standing hay paddock for the winter as being the one that's least clayy, at least initially, until that organic matter builds up in that clay area. So the area that they do go out to in the winter would be the driest, highest paddock usually because that's the one that's going to be take longer to get to that stage where you need to get them out of there because they're starting to damage the paddock. And one, one thing we often say to uh, natural resource managers when they say to us, you know, are you going to t- be teaching our clients all about different soil types and all that sort of thing is what we actually say is, Horse owners, because this whole thing about soil and land management is quite new to them, All initially all they need to understand really is that soil is either too dry or too wet. And at most, m- most times of the year, it's one or the other. Very occasionally, it falls into the just right category. But a lot of the time, it's either too dry or too wet. And some countries, like say Australia, it tends to be too dry, but it also definitely gets too wet. In the UK, it's too wet most of the time, and but sometimes it's too dry. But basically, once you understand that and you understand that when it's in either end of the spectrum like that, if you just let your horses out on there willy-nilly, they're going to be causing damage to the land. That's all you really need to understand. You need to learn how to identify that and remove that grazing pressure once it gets to that stage. Yes. Does that make sense? And later on, then, they can learn about, you know, more as they get more excited about it. Because amazingly, once people start to learn a little bit, once they start down this, this path, they then start to get really excited about it themselves. Whereas if you go straight in there and start trying to teach people all the differences between soils and, you know, too much information about soil initially, it can be, it's, it's not very sexy. Do you know what right, I mean? Right, um, Initially. Right. Yeah. So again, I'm I'm going to use my own pastures as an as an example because I think one of them is very typical. It has an area in it that is is very wet. In the spring, it's the last area that that dries mm. out. It's a very yeah. wet area. The grass that grows there is not grass that the horses seem to want to eat. It's where they drop their manure and then they'll overgraze uh, other sections of the field. Mm. And that, I think, is a very typical. I see that a lot in pastures. So yes. how do you deal with a pasture that has these very definite zones in it? Yeah. So there's a zone the horses don't want to graze in. Yes, well, there's a very, very simple solution for that, and that's just that 
you look at each pasture and often a pasture has been fenced incorrectly to start with meaning that on a lot of horse properties it's been fenced into these nice little square areas and it's not taken into account the fact that one area one pasture's got a low-lying wet area and a high dry area all in the same paddock but it's very simple to remedy because all you need to do is put an electric fence say across the two or fence off the low-lying wet area or whatever you separate it and you graze them at different times or in your pasture as you said you've got if you've got a circular area that's just like a low-lying wet boggy area you put a fence around that and only graze it at the right you know when it's just right to graze um so that would be when when you know say in a long hot dry summer then that the what's beautiful about doing that is that saves that then for when the rest of the pasture now has been grazed enough and it's not growing back quickly enough because it's too dry you've now got this area that stays carries on growing grass for much longer because it's wetter um, but you haven't actually grazed it yet so you've held that back and now you can graze it um, because the conditions are just right so again it's once people learn how to see that they can then see you know how to do that so in Australia very typically people build what's called a dam but basically it's a man-made pond um, in a paddock and what we teach people to do over there is you put a fence around that and you separate that for because one you don't want the horses drinking in there anyway you want them coming back to the holding yard to get a drink anyway but also it means that by fencing it off all those plants can grow around that water they can filter the nutrients out they can keep the water clean and then even if it's just a few times a year when it's very hot for example you can let them in there let them give it a really quick rapid graze let them play in the water if you want them to and then get them back out because you've got that area fenced off separately you can then control that whereas when it's just part of the paddock you, you see it all the time in australia these 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 dams are just totally overgrazed they're all boggy around the outside nothing grows around them they get silted up because the the land itself has been overgrazed and then over right. in over the years they have to be re-dug out because they've been silted up and so on nothing lives in them and then they get lots of algae on them because all the manure is getting into them and again yeah i was just going to say that a simple fence just turns it around yeah all you do fence it off let the vegetation grow and that that downward spiral of events suddenly then turns into an upward spiral of events just from using an electric fence i see that i see that all the time with mm. we call them farm ponds yes and they tend to be just these mm -hmm. green nasty messes so by fencing them off you're saying and that makes yeah. sense so that the plants then filter absolutely so we're not going to see creates land for wildlife as yeah. well yes huh so what a simple mm. solution. One simple electric fence can do all that. And then later yeah. on, you can put a more permanent fence around it. But initially, just one simple electric fence will do it. Right. And then you're not putting all the algicides and everything else that I've seen yes. people yeah. trying to use. And uh, I'm thinking of one farm in particular, the backflips they, they used to go through to get rid of the algae, none of which were yeah. good for the environment. And none of them worked. That's right. Huh. That's right. And it, all it takes is that fence to do it. It's it's just fascinating how simple a lot of solutions are. Yes. Um, as humans, we tend to over overcomplicate things, whereas the most often the least expensive and most simple solution is the best. Mm. It's about look at, you know, getting the animals to do their thing. Let them help you and you help them at the same time. It's, you know, it's 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 about learning about their behavior and what they need but also about wildlife so for instance when you were talking about the amount of insects on your property over time and it could take several years but over time you will even see less biting insects because if you provide habitat for wildlife so you start to get more bats and birds and so on they will start to eat many more insects yes. because there's more wildlife there so you see less insects one of the reasons we see so many insects these days is because there's not enough land for wildlife so no. so we're bound to see these plagues of insects we see that again in australia that's very common uh, but even uh, you know all countries have these problems because we've used insecticides so willy-nilly and we've also cut down the hedgerows and the and the, the the habitat for wildlife and on a horse property this is another beautiful thing a five acre property can become 
a haven for wildlife so easily. All it needs is the corner of every paddock, which is dangerous anyway if you've got square paddocks. You put an electric fence across the corner, you plant a tree in the corner, you've created a safer corner for the horses, somewhere that they can't stand in the corner and wear it out. Instead, it becomes a home for a tree, which becomes habitat for all these species of wildlife, which pay you back by eating all the insects, eating a large amount of insects. Yes. So another massively simple solution, a little bit of fencing across the corner, a tree, and then you leave it to go. And in time, that's going to become part of your wildlife corridor that you're going to create. And hopefully your neighbours will do the same. And you're going to have these wildlife corridors right across the countryside. So horse owners can so much be the solution to what, what the problems we're having now. As farms are getting large, commercial farms are becoming larger and larger. If we've got these pockets of horse properties around the countryside, then they, they can do an enormous job of recreating land for wildlife, sequestering carbon through better grazing management. It's so exciting. It really is. It, it is. And that's uh, it, that horse people, that we truly can make a difference. Absolutely. Truly can. I, I saw that our, our swallow population this year has really ballooned. Because, mm. you know, we started with the one swallow nest in the first year the barn was there. And now we have so many swallows and it's wonderful. And there are no flies in the barn. Wow. Because yes. we have we have those swallows. And it's fabulous, isn't it? It is. It yeah. is. It's such a it's such a obvious example and a great example of mm. exactly what you're talking about. That's right. I mean, the, the subject of dung beetles is another case in point is that you know, we, we, we do all these things with manure and up to recently we've completely ignored the world's dung manure expert, which is dung beetles. There's nothing we can do with manure that comes even close to what a dung beetle can do. The, the dung beetles, they remove it, they aerate the soil, they take the worms too far down into the soil for them to survive. Uh, what by worms I mean parasitic worms they, they take the nutrients deep down into the soil and the roots of the plants have to go down further to reach them it's just unbelievable the amount of jobs they do so the humble dung beetle so it's it's just fascinating how once we look at nature and as, and see how much of that we can get working for us then yeah the, the, the problems just go away if we if we're willing to look at it and we have so many people now doing this. We've got a fabulous Facebook group, which just goes from strength to strength. And so many people are excited about what we, we do. We've been teaching this now for about 15 to 20 years all around the world. We've, we've even been over to the States once teaching over there. And, you know, people are finding that it doesn't actually matter what climate you live in. It works just the same, whether you're in a semi-tropical or tropical climate, whether you're in dry land climate or whatever, because it's all about increasing organic matter, increasing land for wildlife, because that in turn then will help you too. So it's about yeah, increasing biodiversity, and then it pays off by being your horses are healthier and happier, so they have better welfare. But also, you're going to eventually spend less, you'll spend less time as well, and you'll have more time to actually do the things you love with your horse. So instead of spending hours picking up manure, which you don't need to because the dung beetles are doing the job, then, you know, you, all that time that you spend, you can instead spend with your horse and exercising your horse if needs be or whatever you want to do. The things that you thought you were going to do when you first got into horses, but didn't in the end because the, the way you're keeping them is just taking too much time and money. Right. You can turn all that around. So a couple more questions. In which order do I want to ask them? Biodiversity, really important. Mm. Are there things in addition to what you've been talking about that we can be doing, should be doing to increase the biodiversity in our pastures and in the hedgerows around the pastures? Yeah. So various things you can do to increase biodiversity. So number one is better grazing management, which is what the experimental system is about. So straight away, that will increase the biodiversity anyway. Another thing is finding out um, what should be growing in your area. And there's usually groups in, your, in your, the area that you live in that will be to do with natural resource management. So you can usually ask about what sort of plants should 
be growing in your area and you can usually find seed mixes that um that that are just for your area so you can hand seed that into mulch so anywhere the horses have eaten hay you leave it on the ground when it starts to rain just throw seeds into that obviously get the horses out of there and let that you know those seeds germinate into that mulch or even just throw them into the paddock itself overseed into the paddock itself so that will increase your um, biodiversity then in the for the hedgerows and so on you have, you can fence off around the outsides of your paddocks with different plant species again look you know get information about what is local to your area what should be growing in your area because you shouldn't be trying to grow a plant that's from thousands of miles away so it's all about improving the soil health so again that's by your rotational grazing will take care of that and then you'll get your biodiversity coming through because of that because most soil already has thousands of viable seeds in there it just needs chance to get going and and that happens when you start to rotationally graze the young beetles aerate soil so if they get going then they're taking they're actually aerating the soil for you so what I find fascinating is that most of them, in fact, if not all the machinery we have, all it does is copy what nature does. So a, a ripper or an aerator is just doing the job of what dung beetles would do. A mowing machine is doing what, what a herd of grazing animals would do and so on. So those, you know, those animals can actually help us to, without us needing machinery. So, yeah, back to biodiversity. So it's about, um, yeah, getting advice about what should be growing in your area. There's often schemes where you can get very inexpensive plants, so, so trees and bushes, um, sometimes for free. Certainly in Australia, you can often get trees for free from organisations such as Landcare and help with planting them uh, just to get these wildlife corridors happening again. So find out what's in your area in terms of advice and free help. And that can go a long way to increasing biodiversity. And what if you have an invasive species? I was just out in mm. California and they were telling me about star thistle, which just sounds yeah. like a horrible thing to have in your field when it's not native to your area. And I know in the UK that there are certain toxic plants that yeah. you definitely don't want. So how do you manage those plants that are going to be toxic for the horses or uh, need to be out of the pasture right so there's two two things to think about there one is that certain toxic plants once the horses have access to bio, a biodiverse pasture they won't actually touch the wrong plants because they have choice but you still have to be very careful and you still you need to fully understand those plants so if they are dangerous and if you think that there's a chance that your horses are, could be grazing them, you need to learn as much as you can about that plant, and then you need to get local advice. So, uh, and, and generally speaking, you wouldn't go to a traditional agronomist because they're usually just going to tell you to rip up the whole paddock. Well, not always, but they'd often tell you to you know, poison the whole pasture. Whereas, again, if you can find a land care group in Australia, it would be over here in the UK, it would be uh, Natural England. These sort of groups that have experts about the local plants and get their advice on how to get rid of that plant. Because in some cases, you don't necessarily need to get rid of it. In other cases, you definitely do. But you need that local advice on what to do with it. And so if I'm a horse owner and I'm thinking, that sounds really good, where do I go for that advice? Mm. The kinds of groups that I would be looking for again are like natural are what? resource management. Yeah. So as I say in Australia, that's a group called Landcare. In the US, I know you have like outreach workers from. Yeah, I know there are conservation groups because we did talks right. for a few of them in um, around the states in twenty twelve, and they they have experts on and and their approach usually is to be you know to to not poison the whole paddock and rip it up or whatever but to actually just look at individual plants so there's there's always lots of help out there it's it's just finding that help and that's where being in a good group and that's where your new group is going to be able to help out because yes. people can ask these questions yes uh, who yes. do I speak to in my area and as the group gets larger it's like in our own private group you know we have people from everywhere now and it, when somebody asks a question like that you know, they just get so many answers from people exactly. who live in their area. So that's how exactly. it works. Yeah, exactly. Because 
we can't give the specific answer to no. uh, you know what what is the right answer for me living in yeah. New York is a completely different Absolutely. answer to a, somebody living yeah in... a really good example of that is willows here in the UK willows are a great tree um, but in Australia they're a very invasive weed and cause millions of dollars worth of damage. So, you know, people need to understand that, that even, you know, like the willow here is a, a natural plant, but in yes. the wrong environment, it's a very, it's, it's an invasive weed because when it's out of its own environment, it doesn't have its own controls. It doesn't have that's the insects right. that control it and so on. And so it gets out of control. And that's what's happened in Australia with many plants. So, and that, that's the definition of a weed. A weed is a flower growing in the wrong place. Mm, it's just a plant in the wrong place, absolutely. I, I always laugh when I'm over in the UK at the garden centres mm. and I see pots of goldenrod for sale. <laughs> Yes. Goldenrod, yes, you know, yeah. which is, um, and and I've actually even seen pots of goldenrod for sale in our local garden wow. centers, yes, and yeah. that's really a riot. You know, yes, it's like, yeah. oh my heavens! I know that's right. Yes. Yeah, you just you just laugh at some of these things, Absolutely. and yet, but then when I'm over in the UK and I see these things like rosemary that's mm. growing as a foundation, huge bush of it and I think oh that's what I have in a little tiny pot on my kitchen counter because you can't even it's not winter hardy and so a weed is a flower growing in the wrong place is a good definition it is it is that's right another last example of that is in Australia there's a massive uh, weed problem with Patterson's Curse and we went on holiday to Spain and it's a protected species (laughs) Um, yeah yeah so it just happens everywhere, doesn't it? And as you travel, you see this, and it's quite amusing. Yes. yes. Um, so yeah. manure piles. So what should we be doing with our manure piles? Right. Well, first of all, hopefully you, you have dung beetles. And in Australia, they are huge, meaning not actually huge as in like hippopotamus. What I mean is they are huge in terms of they're very important. They they have a wonderful program going over there. They've that's been going. They put millions and millions of dollars into. So dung beetles work very very well here in the UK. People notice that once they start to do the right thing, so they reduce their. Once you start to reduce their um, chemical wormers, uh, but again, you still need to use them probably. But you need to be very careful that you're only using them on the right horses at the right time when they actually need them. Um, and when you do that, then your dung beetle population will start to, sometimes it will start to actually explode. It's, it, it really, you know, you really start to see dung beetle activity. Once you have dung beetles working, you don't need to harrow while they're working. In fact, if you did harrow, you'd be doing them a disservice. And if you pick up the dung, you'll be doing them a disservice because you're removing their habitat. And as I said earlier, they can do, they can deal with that manure a million times better than anything you can ever do with it. So you let them get on with what they, um, they're best at. When they're not working, because even in, even in climates where they have a large dung beetle populations, they're usually only working at certain times of the year, unless you're really lucky and you have species working all year round. Usually there's periods when they're not working. Depending on the size of the pasture, depends on whether you either pick up the manure which is what you might usually do anyway. So if you have a lot of horses on a small area, then you usually do need to pick up your manure. If you have less horses on a larger area, and even better, if you have other species of grazing animals, so if you have sheep or cows grazing that area as well, then instead, as you rest and rotate, as you rotate those pastures, you can harrow those pastures. But the also, the, because you've got other grazing animals in there, they're picking up, um, some of those parasites and killing them out in their se- in their system because the parasites are what's called host specific. They've evolved in alongside one particular species of animal. So what we what we the reports we're getting back is that people who manage their land in the way that we advocate in the equicentral system they're seeing their their worm counts going down and down every year, and and therefore needing less chemical therefore getting more dung beetles. So it's just another one one more layer to the this system of management where once you start to do the right thing, you start to get an upward spiral of events rather than a downward spiral of events. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And then in the holding area where the horses are standing, you'll you'll be picking that up and then Yes, absolutely. 
And, and composting okay, so, that if you can. Uh, yes. So composting it. And then when you're talking about that, what are you envisioning as a really good system for managing the composting of manure? And then what do you do with it once it's been composting for a while? Well, once it's... So there's... Going... Sticking on with composting for a minute, there's two ways of doing that. So there's the... There's, a, there's straight composting, but there's also vermiculture where you're using worms to compost it, compost it for you. So that's another really exciting thing to look into. Yes. Um, is using composting worms, but either way, you end up with compost, and then that needs to go back on the land because you should have a mantra in your head, which is that nothing organic leaves this property. Yes. Meaning yes. everything stays yes. on the land and creates more organic matter. Yes. So we, we used to talk to horse owners, for instance, in Australia, it's very common to sell your manure for $2 a bag at the front gate. And we used to say to them, do you realise it's cost you lots more than $2 to create that stuff and you're selling it and people are buying it as a soil conditioner and you're selling it for $2 a bag. It should be $50 a bag. And once you learn how to manage it, you certainly would never sell it again. So... But we had one really interesting story of one lady who was selling it. And by the time she'd been through our teaching, she bought in lots, lots more chickens. She was using, because this actually this is the third way you can deal with manure. In fact, there's probably even more. But one thing you can do is use chickens to help you. So they, you put the manure where the chickens are. They scratch through it. They eat out the parasitic worm larvae. They add their own manure to it. It composts in place, and then that can then go back on the land. And the chickens, meanwhile, are producing eggs um, from that manure and from any other food scraps that you feed them or whatever. So again, it's another beautiful way of dealing with it and starting to produce some food for yourself as well. So, And that's a good example, again, going back to permaculture that we talked about right at the beginning. That's how, you know, that chickens are so important in uh, the permaculture system. And that's just one of the fantastic things they can do is manage your manure for you. So uh, they actually save you a lot of work because they are scratching through that manure and cleaning it for you in terms of eating the weed seeds and eating the parasitic worm larvae. Just a quick, really good story about a guy we once met in Australia. He was getting paid three times over for manure. He was being paid to remove it from uh, a racing stable next door. So he used to get paid to take it away every day. He had thousands of chickens, so he would drop it all on his big concrete yard that had thousands of chickens on it. He was selling the eggs from those chickens, and then he was selling the composted manure from those chickens once they'd cleaned it and conditioned it for him. So he was getting paid three times over for the same manure. And once we used to tell this story to people, and lots of people then went off and created that similar system for themselves... Um, and had great results with it. So again, if you were building a property from scratch, you could actually build something that uh, chickens could actually be part of that system for and work for you. Interesting, huh? Mm. So, so Amanda, what are do you have? Do you have more questions? I feel as though I've been monopolizing the questions. No, I think actually you asked all of the questions I was going to ask. Did we ever get back to foggage? I know I was going to I was going to head to to the winter. So I live in a in a climate that gets very very hot, humid, sort of tropical heat kind of mm. of hot summers, but then very arctic cold winters. And we tend to close the paddocks in the winter. Yeah. Sometimes that's because we get ice storms early on and it just seems treacherous to have the horses out. And then once once we close the paddocks, mm. there's just this idea of letting them rest over the winter. And it's a fairly typical for my area that people often close the paddocks for the winter. And then in the spring, at some point, you let the horses back on. Mm. So is this a cycle that we can change? In most cases, there, there will be some climates where it could be more difficult. So for instance, if a really, really wet winter, the gra if you let the grass grow too tall before you lock it off for the winter, when if you get a lot of heavy rainfall, so say around Seattle in the US and here in the UK, if it gets very tall and then in the winter it gets very, very wet, it will tend to just drop it, knock it down and it will, it will sit there on the ground. That is still not a disaster in terms of that's 
that's still putting all that organic matter back into the soil and even if it gets snow on it the horses then can dig through that like they would in the wild and eat it through the snow so that could that's good as well but if you're wanting it to produce feed for you through the winter then obviously you want it to be viable standing hay for the winter otherwise you would have to buy in more hay um, so if if you know if, if that's an issue if, if there's a chance you're going to run out then you would look at uh, locking the paddock off when the grass is not too tall so that it doesn't get knocked over too easily by the rain and the wind really all you can do is play around with it maybe start with one small paddock and play around at what height works best and just use that um, a bit in the winter and but keep in mind that if you're turning horses out onto a paddock with longer grasses on it you can turn them out for far longer than you would if it was short grass because th when that grass is short the minute it gets wet their hooves start to do damage, whereas with longer grass, they can trample around on that long grass, and it's actually a good thing. In fact, you can even throw seeds into that, and they can be trampling that into the grass for you. And come spring, that's another way that you can actually in will increase the biodiversity, because they've trampled all those seeds in for you, and then when it starts to warm up in the spring, all those grasses will start to grow up. Right. Excellent. And foggage, so what, what, what? So sorry, that is foggage. So it's standing that hay. That is foggage. Yeah. It's, okay. it's just the idea of standing hay. So you're saving on baling costs. You're saving on trying to get somebody to come and bale it for you because this is a huge issue for small horse property owners is actually getting somebody to come and do the job for them at just the right time. So by instead of getting somebody to come in and cut the hay for them, you're just locking the paddock up at a certain time of the year when it will grow to about, in about three quarters of its full height depends and then you're locking it up so that in the winter you'll let them out when the times are right to graze over that paddock in the winter we usually recommend that you strip graze them across that paddock because if you turn horses out onto a, a large paddock of standing hay they will tend to trample more than they eat you know by walking around on it all day but if you strip graze them across it so in the winter that means they can be walking from their holding yard out to the um, the bit that they're strip grazing in the paddock and back again. And that's still 100% better than what they normally would do in the winter, which was, would normally be locked up all winter. So it's still much better. And as I said, they're, you know, even if they're trampling a lot of that hay, it's doing the paddock good anyway, because they're trampling that organic matter into the soil. And obviously if it gets too wet, you wouldn't let them out at that point. Right. But that's still, you know, going out sometimes is still better than not going out at all. Interesting. Lots to mm. lots to consider in terms of how to do it better. Yeah. And then, so if we start to get things right and we see a healthier pasture, if we then go down into the soil and we start talking about sequestering carbon, mm. can you talk a little bit about that and, and what we're actually doing in the soil? Well, what's really interesting is that we all... We all know that we should be planting more trees and there's been lots of emphasis on planting more trees. But what's fascinating is that pasture is actually better at sequestering carbon than trees. And that's because pasture grows so rapidly in the right conditions. When you, when you make it so that the conditions are right, then pasture sequesters carbon really fast. Because what the pasture is doing is it's growing rapidly and at the same time that what you see above ground is growing, that same amount pretty much is growing below ground. So, and, and every time that pasture is grazed, the, it, what it does is it, it, cuts, it, it, it cuts back what you see above ground, but the, the uh, root system also shrinks back. And so what it does is it, it, a lot of those roots die, but they leave that, that carbon in the soil. Then the plant is rested because you now rotational grazing. It grows back up again. The roots shoot out again out into the soil. And now they've, start, they've got there's a lot more life in the soil. So each time you do it, it gets better and better. So each, you know, these roots now are um, creating more and more carbon in the soil. They, they, it, so it's coming down from the plant that's above ground, down into the roots, and it's staying there in the soil. So the soil now is becoming this massive factory, if you like, of carbon, which is just amazing because this is what we need. Uh, this is what Manda was talking about so eloquently in her talk, 
is about how important it is to sequester carbon. And this is what is so fascinating. Grazing animals are so important for this, you know, so the grazing animals are actually getting a lot of bad press at the moment, what with people talking about cows and so on. But when you actually understand how amazing grazing is, it's just so exciting to think that, and of course, you know, a, a, of course a grazing animal is going to be good for the environment. It's a natural animal that's evolved alongside grass plants. Without grazing animals, those plants cannot do their thing. This is another very interesting point, actually, is that just say you have a paddock and it's been hammered for a while and you think, right, I'm going to give that paddock five years off. You wouldn't really do this, but just say you did. He said, right, it's been hammered for so many years, I'm going to give it five years off. And so you lock the gate, you let it go to seed, you lock the gate, and you come back five years later. Five years later, there will be no more carbon in that soil than the day you locked it up. Because the plants went to seed, but that's it. They can then, until they're cut back by a grazing animal, or it's copy, a mower, then they don't regrow and, and take more carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into the soil. So grazing is so important because think about it in the natural system, plant pastures don't get locked up and animals restricted from going onto them. What happens is they get grazed, then the animals move on. The, the pasture gets a certain amount of time before another herd of animals comes along, usually of a different species. But, and, and they cut the plants back again, and then the plants recover again. And that's what happens in the natural cycle. So grazing is fabulous for pasture plants. It's just overgrazing that's a problem. So once horse owners understand that, then it, that's again why, where it gets so exciting, because you realise that your horses are a tool for creating for, for getting more carbon out of the atmosphere into the soil they're you know they're a really really important tool just like all the other grazing animals are in terms of carbon sequestration it is truly so exciting because it is when you think that that our horses can be part of the solution yes it's just and and that there are horses seeded everywhere mm. so the power of influence that we have is enormous mm. because there are horses everywhere. Yes. And the more we learn about this, that's right. The more difference we can make, both for our horses' welfare, for the welfare of other grazing animals. Because what you're saying is it's not that cows are a problem. Yes. We keep hearing this about cows and methane. It's that cows in feedlots mm. yes. instead of cows out grazing and being part of this that's cycle. Right. That's the problem that's right yeah yes that's right absolutely it's you know cows eating the way they're meant to eat which is grazing grass and a, and biodiverse grass then yes absolutely it's not a problem it, you know it doesn't make any sense for them to be a problem when they're doing what they naturally do it's when we keep them yeah. in intensive situations that they become a problem. Oh, it is exciting. It is, you know, because it's something that, that as horse owners, it's something that we can do. Mm. We can, by as we create healthier pastures, we create healthier horses. Absolutely. And as we create healthier pastures, we are contributing to the solution to the crime, climate crisis. That's right. So we talk about how it's a win-win-win-win yes. yes. situation. Yes. It's just... And it, what, what we find very interesting is our talks that we do around, you know, mainly in the UK and Australia and sometimes in the US, but we know that we just have to get people there. As, as, as I said earlier, it's, it's, it's not very sexy to be talking about uh, pasture management. We know it's going to be hard to get them there, but once we get them there... They walk out of the door at the end of the day so excited because they suddenly realise that they've got solutions and that they can, you know, they can they can turn their their horse property around, they can make the horses healthier and happier, they can save themselves time and energy and money usually. There's so many, you know, it works in so many ways. It's just quite um mind-boggling really and very, it's very great. exciting. It's great. So I I Thank you immensely, immensely for sharing and, and taking the time today. So before you leave, contact information. Where can people learn more? Okay, right. Well, we, we have a good 
well, we think it's good, uh, a good website. So that's equiculture.net. So it's very simple. We've got, and on there, there are links to all our social media pages. We've also got a very active um, YouTube channel. That's Equiculture and Horse Riders Mechanic, because I'm also a rider biomechanics teacher. So that's the channel on there. But again, there's a link to that on the website. We have our books, which you can get on the website. And as I said, there's our Facebook pages are all linked off the website as well. So the easiest thing probably is to just go straight to the website because it's all leads out from there anyway. So that's equiculture.net. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's uh, straightforward to remember, I think. Yes. And we have, we, like I said, we have a private group, which people who... Uh, we do do... We have a course. It's not very expensive, but we have a course. And then people get into the private group, and that's just... Fabulous group, absolutely fabulous, and has so many people in it, ranging from total beginners right through to all sorts of specialists. It's just fascinating. And again, it's just so exciting to be in there because it's a group of like-minded people, and this is what's so lovely about it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the co- the course, uh, it goes into more depth than how yes. to... Yeah. yeah, it's three quite large books. But when people do the course, we work through the books in uh, bit by bit and they, they learn it all very thoroughly. Plus, they get the addition of being in the group so they can ask any questions they want. Um, and again, what's really good is then they can also get that local um, information that they need because there's people in there from pretty much yes. everywhere. And so they can, when they ask a question, they usually get you know a very local answer as well, which is great. So, yeah, I mean, it can... Just a typical sort of problem is here in the UK, local councils will often restrict people being able to put in house standing. And hopefully that's going to change in the future because with a bit of education, they're going to see that allowing a horse owner to put some hard standing in is going to lead to better pasture management. But they just need to understand that. So we've got people in there who help other people, you know, with how to do that, how to get the right advice to get their application in and that sort of thing. But yeah, everything gets covered in the group. It's it's just brilliant. Excellent. Wonderful. Oh, well, thank thank you immensely. Immensely. Thank you. It's been very good. Yeah. Amanda, are there any questions left outstanding? Or- I don't think so. I think okay. we covered everything. It was right. that was a very broad-ranging conversation. It was really exciting. And then Amanda, um, you have a new podcast that's about to be launched, which is going to be Yes. Accidentalgods.life will be the um, website. And the podcast will be called Accidental Gods, and I will send you links that we can put up on all the various places. I hope it's going to launch 1st of November, because in our Celtic calendar, that's the beginning of the new year. But I went to Extinction Rebellion last week and spent the week um, sitting on the roads at Trafalgar, so it might get a bit late. Um, But that's the plan. It's conscious evolution, consciously made. I think the next evolutionary step needs to be conscious and we need to make conscious. Yes, wonderful. How to do that. So that's the point. Right. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I thank you both immensely. This is going to be extremely helpful, I know, to lots and lots and lots of people. So we'll just keep sharing and getting information out and and horse people can make a difference. Good. Yes, absolutely. They can. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And do please join us on Facebook at Horses for Future. And check out our website, sequestercarbon.com. It's becoming a great information hub. And remember, horse people can make a difference. Bye for now.